Let's pray. Father, thanks for today. Thank you for the gift you've given to us in this season. Lord, I ask that you would open our eyes to your word. May we be more overwhelmed with what, in fact, you did do than anything else around us, even our tradition or those things that we hold most dear. May we hold you, your truth, most dear. So give us wisdom as we look at your word. Help us to have a great time together. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Amen. Have a seat. Feels like Christmas out there, doesn't it? Um, it's kind of, it's almost arc-like today. Um, so let me, let me have you go to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, and, and let me just start by saying this. I don't know if you're like this. I'm kind of a, a 50-50 split when it comes to what I prefer. Do I prefer um, the book or do I prefer the movie? Do you know what I mean? So there's a lot of movies that are popular today that, that were at one point books. And so a lot of us are like, man, you, you go to the movie and it's like, man, you should read the book. And then sometimes, sometimes you read the book, you're like, man, the movie was so much better. So I'm not sure who you are or where you land in, in, in all of that. Um, I, for me, personally, um, it really is kind of a 50-50 split, but there was one specific instance where the book was far better than the movie that I saw. So when I was in fourth grade, um, I had a teacher. Her name was Mrs. Gaskins. I don't know anything else about her other than in fourth grade, she seemed like she was the tallest woman in the world. That's what I remember. We were an incredibly rambunctious and obnoxious class as fourth graders. I know that might surprise you that I would be included in that group. Uh, we would do recess, and after recess every day, we would come in, and she would have to try to get us to mellow out because we were just like, yeah, let's go, and she'd be like, okay, everybody sit, put your heads on the desk. She would lower the shades. She would have a single light on right by her, and she would sit in front of the class, and she would read to us. And, and, and she would read all kinds of stuff, and some of them were really good, and some of them were like, well, that was terrible. But, but that's, as a fourth grader, it's going to be a little bit different. However, there was one book that she read to us that has left an indelible mark on my soul, even to this day, Where the Red Fern Grows. Uh-huh, right? Right? I, I, she read that book, and one of the reasons, I remember, I bawled like a baby through that book, but part of the reason was, so did she. I was like, why do you do this to yourself as a teacher? Even then, I didn't understand. But she would read the book and just be in ball, and it was terrible. So that was back in fourth grade. In 1994, they made the movie. I was like, all right. My favorite book from childhood, made into the movie. And you sit down, and you watch the movie, and it was trash. It's absolute trash. And I remember telling my kids, and everybody was like, don't even watch the movie. Read the book. The book is so much better. And, and for everybody, it's a little bit different on that. Some people really get into reading because, and here's why, I'll be honest with you, it's because it engages a level of your imagination that else, elsewhere, you really don't get to engage it. So, so you read the book, and when you're reading a book, in your imagination, you are putting those characters, you're actually putting faces on those characters, you're putting voices on those characters, you're putting behaviors on those characters. The, the imagery that you're seeing in the book is based on your own internal imagination, which is a, which is a good and right and wonderful thing to celebrate and enjoy sometimes. Um, but, but, but it's important that you, you're careful with how far your imagination goes. And I will, I, will, I will confess in front of you, if you've been coming here at any length of time, you know this about me, this is your first time, you're about to learn something about me. I love the storytelling aspect of Scripture. I love standing in front of you and saying, hey, just, just take a step 
and, and, and close your eyes and, and put yourself there. Because I think the reality is Scripture was written for us to be there and experience what is happening in these stories so that we might understand in a more uh, full way what God's trying to do for us as he seeks to redeem us. And so, so, so but my problem, my problem is, is I tend to, I start here and I'm like, here's the story. Okay, put myself there. That would be funny if this happened. Be hilarious if this happened. And by the time I open my eyes, I'm over here somewhere. And so, so I made a commitment years ago to a mentor of mine that before I preached whatever story that God has brought into for, for either illustrative purposes or preaching purposes, the last thing I do before I leave my office on Sunday morning and head out here with y'all is I reread the story just to, just to kind of calibrate my sanctified imagination and make sure I'm actually anchored into at least a little bit of truth. There are fewer stories of Scripture that have been given added information special highlights, even brand new characters being introduced that don't, aren't in the story to begin with, like the story of the nativity. So I know I got asked this question last week, why in the world would you do this series where you're just blowing up all the things we think about the nativity? Well, okay, the answer is very simple. As your pastor, I just I want to make your children cry. <laughs> just kidding. Um, I did have somebody this morning come to me like, 67 years, and somebody finally tells me this? Thank you. You're welcome. Uh, listen, none of the things that I'm going to talk about are a matter of life and death, okay? But I think rightly understanding the story of the nativity found in Luke chapter 2, rightly understanding it from what is exactly said and rightly understanding it in the, the age that it was written, to the audience that it was written, is so incredibly important that what it's going to do is it's going to remind us of the power of the Word of God, the power of the truth that God has for us. It's going to remind us of how far God was willing to go to rescue us. And that's the, that's the hope, is that we would land there. Um, I'm going to read uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Then I'm going to kind of walk through it and, and point out some things, um, highlight some areas, um, tell you a few things that you may not know about the culture of the day that might help you in your understanding of the story. And, and I'm always afraid when I do a, a, a sermon like this, I'm always nervous that I'm not going to land the plane where I'm supposed to land the plane. So let me give you the main point of the entire sermon this morning, right up front, and I'll, we'll hit it again a couple times through. But I want to make sure you know this. The, the, the message of the nativity isn't that Jesus humbled himself and came into extraordinary poverty. It's that Jesus humbled himself and came into everyday humanity. There's two very different pictures there. You've got extraordinary poverty and everyday humanity. And many of us look at Joseph and Mary and the life that they lived, and oh my goodness, that's how they had to give birth, and this is what happened, and this is the shepherds, and this, this, this. They are so poor. They are so less than me in my 21st century American mind. But that's not the power of the story of the nativity. The power of the story of the nativity is that Joseph and Mary were so much less than God, and yet God in flesh laid in the lap of Mary herself after she gave birth to him. The beauty and the wonder of the nativity isn't found in drama. It's found in the access we have to God because of what he did. So let's walk through this. Here we go. Chapter 2, 
Starting in verse 1, an incredibly familiar passage of Scripture. I'm reading out of the Christian Standard Bible, for those of you that are, are, are wondering. Um, that comes into play towards the end of our passage today. So Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 1, says this. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the whole empire should be registered or taxed. This first registration took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So everyone went to be registered, each to his own town. Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the family line of David, to be registered along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was pregnant. Now, while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. She gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him tightly in cloth, laid him in a manger, because there was no guest room available for them. Oh, what? What was that last verse? There was no guest room available for them, so I'm kind of tipping my hand here. I'm going to show you that a little bit later. But, but most of your versions have it translated differently. It doesn't say guest room. It says, because there was no room for him where? In the inn. We'll talk about that. So now you know one of your traditions that I'm going to blow up this morning. All right, so let's start at the beginning. So you got Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus, his, his name was Octavian. Octavian was the adopted son of Julius Caesar. Um, Octavian uh, was uh, a fellow who was skilled in military prowess. He was definitely a political leader who knew how to work all of the angles and, and lead um, a, a group of leaders. So he's, he's fascinating to study that. But Caesar Augustus also demonstrated a true greatness in his ability to administrate some remarkable projects and tasks. Under his rulership, under Caesar Augustus's rulership, they, they created a, an irrigation system and, a, and a, a, a water provision system and a sewer system that had never been seen before in the world. He was the first to create this. In fact, much of our own water system is designed after some of his basic concepts that he employed 2,000 years ago. He, he created this uh, uh, desire, this drive, and this ability to build a system of roads that has never been seen. I mean, it was a, it was a system of roads in that time. Nobody had roads like this. He, he, he built miles and miles and miles of roads. One road that is hundreds of miles, and it is straight. It's like driving to Ohio. It just goes. There's nothing else there. This was his, his thing, his, his deal. And, and, and the roads have held up so very well that here we are almost 2,000 years, a little bit more than 2,000 years later, and some of those roads are still being used. Now, they're not highways, but in 1960, the Olympics were held there and in Rome. And actually, they used a significant section of one of the roads that he oversaw the building of as part of the men's marathon course. So these roads exist still after thousands and thousands of years. So, so he was pouring energy, effort, enthusiasm. He was pouring his own engineering mind into how to build all these things to provide for his countrymen, to provide for his empire. And as a result, what led from all of those things is this thing called the Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome. And it carried out for hundreds of years. And, and, and this is an amazing accomplishment. But in order to do that, you need money. And so what Caesar Augustus did was he taxed his people. Taxes. We all love taxes, don't we? 
Now think about this. You and I are like, it's tax season. Here we go again. But for the people of Israel, the taxes they had to pay were being given to a person who was holding them captive, not allowing them to have a vote or even a voice in what was happening in, the, in that kingdom. They, they, were, they were captors. And so it was a little bit of a bitter topic. But it was something that they had to do. They couldn't argue with it. And, and, and the taxation itself was informed by these censuses, or the plural, sensi. I don't know. I just made that up. Just want to see if you're paying attention. Good. All right. Haven't lost all of you yet. Um, and these, these, these times of census, people would go back to their, their hometowns, to back to their, their family lineage home, and, and there they would be counted. And it was, it was nothing, there's nothing less spectacular or more reasonable than your empire, emperor doing these census so they know how to uh, receive the correct amount of taxes from their people. And, and, and so these things were, were don't. In fact, at this time period, um, it has been found that since about 100 B.C., um, it had started then. They were doing a census every 14 years. Every 14 years. And then occasionally they would do like this one-off census, like this bonus extra one here and there. And, and we're not sure what this one is. We're not sure if this was one of the 14-year census or if it was one of the one-offs. We're, we're really not sure. But the point is this, though. The census, the taxing, is not unusual. It comes your way. It's announced. And because of the way life was, then you just had to journey to your hometown and be counted so you could pay your taxes, just like everybody else. Now, the journey, the journey was about 90 miles if you were going to do it on foot, from Nazareth to Bethlehem. To put it in context for you today, uh, that journey would be something similar to walking out of our parking lot and ending up in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. It's about, that's about as far as it was. Um, along the way, you would be walking over hills, around and over mountains, through valleys, over streams. You're going through dense wilderness, like desert-like situations. And then, then there was the, the most terrifying dangers of that journey was walking along the Jordan River Valley, which was, which was heavily forested. And inside of that forest, which was so thick and heavy. Inside of that forest were the Wizard of Oz animals. The lions and tigers and bears. That's right. Oh, oh my. They're there, right? And, and not only that, we have found, archaeologists have found um, warning signs, you know, like your, your neighbors will do with your beware of dog. There's archaeologists that have found signs that were hung on that, that valley journey by the Jordan River, warning travelers of the robbers and the thieves who would hide in the trees and pop out and steal all your stuff as you were on your, on your journey. Now, almost anyone who would go from Nazareth towards Bethlehem would have gone this way. It, the trip itself isn't unique. It's just what everyday people did. Uh, it's so much so that Matthew and Luke, when they record the nativity story, don't go into any detail about the trip because their assumption is the people who are reading this right now, who I'm writing this for, they're so familiar with, with this common but difficult journey that I don't need to fill in any of the, the blanks. They, they understand it all already. So it was a very common journey. And, and, and now, I would not say it wasn't difficult, and it was certainly made a little bit more complicated um, because um, Joseph is traveling with a very pregnant Mary, like you can be just a little pregnant. But I mean, she was very pregnant. You know exactly what I mean, right? 
And, and, and I probably don't need to say a lot about this, um, but when you are traveling with a very pregnant woman, the journey tends to take a little longer than normal. I mean, there's, there's, there's like, okay, listen, stop the car, I need to stretch. Stop the car, I need to, okay, cool. Oh, we're going to inspect every public facility in all of these buildings. Cool, that's okay. And then my personal favorite was stop the car, I just need to get away from you. That happened a few times in pregnancy, I understand that. That's how it works. <laughs> so, 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 so there's this very pregnant woman in Nazareth with her betrothed. She's got to go to Bethlehem with her betrothed. How, how do you get a very pregnant woman from Nazareth to Bethlehem in the most comfortable and efficient way? A donkey, right? No donkey. It doesn't say anything about a donkey. You don't have to throw away your donkey figurine, I promise. It's okay. But just know, it doesn't say anything about a, about a donkey. In fact, in the culture, it would have been far more likely for Mary to have walked most of the way than to have ridden a donkey. Why? Couple of reasons. Number one, donkeys aren't the most comfortable animals to ride. I don't think it would go well in your marriage, dude, if you're like, hey, very pregnant wife, jump up on this donkey and ride it for nine days. Uh, no, no, that won't go well at all. Uh, on top of that, donkeys aren't very predictable, right? And so to count on them to continue the journey in the right direction when you want them to go was a little bit tough. Now, they used them as pack animals, so they would carry a lot, but even that created problems. I'll give you a little picture of how unpredictable donkeys are. There's this cool organization that does fundraisers. And one of their big fundraisers, they, they come to you in a gym of your choice with basketball hoops with 15 donkeys and 15 helmets. And they get 15 volunteers from your organization to put said helmets on and jump on the back of a donkey and play basketball. Donkey basketball. Look it up. Hilarious. You know what makes it so funny? The donkeys don't cooperate. They don't do what you want them to do. You wouldn't trust a donkey to be the one bringing you to the place that you actually need to be because you couldn't put a lot of trust in the fact that it would follow what you wanted it to do. You might, in fact, walk, ride in a cart that was towed by Joseph or a donkey. You could have ridden a camel, maybe. I got camels in my nativity, so I'm okay. So there you go, got that one. Um, yeah, but, but yeah. So there was probably no riding of the donkey, sorry. I know, it's tragic. Um, here's, here's the crazy part. The journey from uh, uh, Nazareth to Bethlehem. Um, I feel like I said this already. This is where the second service thing comes in. Uh-oh, I'm about to repeat myself, I think. I don't know. Just pretend like you didn't hear this in case, okay, cool. It takes about 26 hours to walk from here to Lancaster if you wanted to walk. Now, 26 hours is assuming you're going to start and never stop. That's like the dad journey. Dad's like, get in the car, we're leaving at 8 a.m., we're gonna walk for eight hours, and you're gonna lay down, you're gonna fall asleep immediately, we aren't stopping for bathrooms, for lunch, nothing. If you need to do it, do it now. Okay, we're gonna go. We're gonna get there as fast as we could possibly get there. That, that's not realistic when it comes to their culture, their timetable, that type of journey, and honestly, traveling with a very pregnant woman. Uh, reality is that they would have made some stops, lots of stops, been a little slower than average, so that means it probably would have taken them between eight and ten days to get from Nazareth to Bethlehem, okay? Eight to ten days, and then they get there, 
They finally make it to Bethlehem after all that time. And they show up at the hotel. And the innkeeper comes out and says, I have no room for Jesus. Right? Right? The innkeeper, right? No, there's no, no innkeeper. This poor dude has been dragged through the mud for thousands of years. He didn't even exist. I mean, there's, there's famous sermons, books, songs written. Have you any room for Jesus? Unlike that horrible innkeeper. There's no innkeeper. Um, poor guy. But is it a safe assumption? I mean, let's say there's an innkeeper. But if there was no room in the inn, is it a safe assumption that there was an innkeeper? Um, well, hold on to your Fisher-Price nativity playset. There is no hotel or motel or inn. What? I've been lied to all these years. Let me, let me, let me first prove it to you and then explain to you what's happening. Um, we, we tend to hear, and, and there's a curious choice of translation for some of the older versions of Scripture that are out there, translations, and I chose the word in, and we hear the word in, and we think of the Greek word, it starts with a P, and it's ponduheon, ponduheon. Um, we think that, that's the inn, that's the hotel, that's the motel. He must be talking about the ponduheon, but that word is not used here in Luke 2. The ponduheon is used in Luke chapter 10. Jesus is talking about this good Samaritan. The good Samaritan went over to the man who had been beaten, and he bandaged up his wounds, and he poured olive oil and wine on him. Then he put him on his own animal. He brought him to the inn, and he took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper. That's the actual innkeeper. He was a good guy. Anyway, and he said, take care of him. When I come back, I'll reimburse you for whatever extra you, you spend. That word inn right there is pondahion. And, and, and that is talking about a hotel-motel type situation where people, travelers, would come into town, they would pay you an amount of money, and you would be able to stay in one of their rooms. It was, a, it was one of those places. But that's not the word that's used in Luke chapter 2, verse 7. The word that's used in Luke chapter 2, verse 7, is the Greek word katalima. Katalima. Katalima? I can't get it right, but that's I can spell it for you. Katalima. We'll call it that. Um, I'll just show you someplace else Luke uses that word. Something you're somewhat familiar with. It's in Luke chapter 22. Jesus talks to his disciples. And he says, listen, when you've entered the city and you find a man carrying a water jug, he will meet you. Follow him into the house he enters. Tell the owner of the house, the teacher asks you, where is the guest room where I can eat the Passover with my disciples? Then he will show you a large furnished room upstairs. So make the preparations there. That's the same word that's being used in Luke 2, where Jesus says to the disciples, go find me an upper room, a guest room. So, so you've got to do this. I know it's uncomfortable because it's like, no, it's supposed to be a hotel with the flickering no vacancy sign, right? It's to be, it's, okay. I want you to think about this. When Jesus and his disciples gathered just before he was betrayed, they gather in an upper room, they break bread together in a somewhat side private room away from everybody else. What do you picture when you see that upper room scene? Whatever you picture there, that's what's happening in Luke chapter 2. We, 
We tend to imagine Joseph and Mary scurrying to find a place. We've got to find a home, but then being turned aside. But that idea doesn't fit the story, and that idea doesn't fit the cultural norm of the day. So when Joseph shows up in Bethlehem, he doesn't show up at a motel hotel and gets a no vacancy sign and an innkeeper yelling at him, telling him to go to the stable. The stable. Did anybody hear the word stable in the read? Oh, you heard me say it. You're right. Thank you. <laughs> Nailed it. Okay. Now, um, in Luke 2, 1 through 7, there's no stable. That's been provided, and I'll, you'll understand why in just a bit. So what is happening? Why? why? Well, I don't understand. Well, here, here, in the culture of the day, if you showed up in your, the, 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 the town of your family's heritage, and you said, I am of the lineage of David, and you showed up to the, the house of the lineage of David, they'd be like, welcome, come on in. And if you were the only one there, they would say, you could use our, our guest room. Not guest room like fancy towels and stuff that your wife doesn't let you touch. Not that guest room, but just a, an aside room. So let me, let me give you a very uncomplicated picture of what homes looked like in this day, and I'll try to explain it to you as we kind of walk, walk through it here, okay? So, so most homes were single-room homes in this day. And most of them were, were kind of, there was ground, and then they would build up almost like a, a platform. So think about the stage here, right? So this would be the, the, the ground, and then there'd be a wall that would go around with a little bit of an opening here and another wall there. And this area right here was just a little lower, maybe two feet lower, and it was, it was dirt, and that's where the animals would be. I'll explain that in just a minute. You would climb up those fancy stairs that I drew up there, because, yes, sir, that's about the level of my art right there. Uh, you go up the stairs, and now you're in this giant fam family living area. This is where you would eat. This is where you would sleep. This is where you would um, spend time together as a family. This is where you would do your Sabbath meal. This is where you would do Passover. All, this area up here, all the while, this is down there. And then, after a little bit of time of living in that space, most families would then add on to the back of their home, the back of their family room, an extra room, a guest room room. And sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes, depending on the wealth of the family, uh, if they were a little more wealthy, instead of just adding on the back and creating a guest room, they would add more stairs and they would create a guest room that was on top of the roof, also called the upper room. Down here, it would be enclosed except for the door. And every night, as the family would retire to their home, they would bring their animals into that area. So literally, I would be sleeping here with sheep right there. That's just, that's just how it was. That was the way the homes worked. That's, that's where it was. So what does it mean for the guest room to have no space? Why was the guest room not available to Joseph and Mary? Because Joseph and Mary didn't get there before Aunt Hilda and Uncle Bob and other family members who had already been offered the opportunity to stay comfortably in the family's guest home, guest room. So Joseph and Mary, instead of being able to stay in the guest room, which, by the way, just to point this out, when a mom was very pregnant and was getting ready to deliver her baby, do you know where she would deliver the baby? In the guest room. In the guest room. What? Why wouldn't they go to the hospital? There's no hospitals? That could be a reason. 
And so what would happen is they would go to the guest room. It was time to deliver. They would go to the guest room area, and the women of the family, including some of the women of the, the neighborhood, the village, the town, would come, and they would help and assist as best they could to the delivery of this baby in that room. And, they, and the men would do what men still do today, which is stand in the corner and be like, please don't let me pass out. Please don't let me pass out. Um, they, would, they would leave and, and, and move the, the other place. And, and, but, but here, they show up, and they're like, sorry, there's no room in the guest room. You're just going to have to live in the family living area, and, and you're, you're just going to be there. And so what ends up happening is Mary gives birth in the family living area, surrounded by the rest of her family. And yeah, that would be totally different than today. But that's not all that uncommon in their day. Um, in fact, let me just throw this at you. When Luke is writing here, Verse 6, they're there, the time came for her to give birth. She gave birth to her firstborn son, and she write him, oh, sorry, she wrapped him tightly in cloth and laid him in a manger. And, and you can stop there, because that's the facts, right? Laid him in a manger. But, but Luke is writing to a people who would have heard that and be like, wait, 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 why wasn't she in the guest room? Oh, this is why. Because there was no guest room available for them. Oh, that makes sense then. How does that, how does that possibly make sense? Let me, let me back up just a little bit. This, this, this birthing. This delivery of this child is real. Real. Uh, something many of you have experienced firsthand. Now, it's a little different, no epidurals, but uh, some of you have experienced that firsthand too, right? And so guess what? It's just common. And it wasn't in an uncommon place. And when this baby is born... They did what every parent did. They wrapped the baby in long strips of swaddling cloths. Well, we don't do that today. Yes, we do. We just use a blanket, and we call it the baby burrito. And after, <laughs> after birthing the baby and walking through that whole process, the journey, whatever, whatever it is, mom needs a nap. Baby needs a nap. Dad probably needs a nap too. And so you got to find some place for the kiddo to be. And so what you do is you take advantage of what's available to you, the manger. Let's, let's, put this, let's put this little guy in the manger. Now, a manger could be one of two different things at this time period. Um, unfortunately, eh, this one's going to sting a little. It wasn't made out of wood. So you know the neat little bassinet thing you got going? Sorry. It's okay, it's okay, no harm, no foul, but just, just if you want to be accurate, the manger would have been in one of two places. One, it would have been in that area where the animals were, and they would just dug a hole in the ground where they would have able, been able to put feed and water into it for their animals. Or, or they would have had a manger that was actually carved out of limestone like that. And for you and I, we look at that and we're like, that's crazy. Why would you put a baby in that? Right? Babies belong in cradles. Why would you put a baby in that? Time out, time out, time out. It was not all that long ago when some of you were putting your newborns in a dresser drawer. Any of you do that or have that done to you? Come on, raise your hand. Come on, come on. That's right. I see your hands. That's right. Way to go. 
See? And not that unusual. Why? We take what we have and we use it. We got to keep them warm, comfy, safe, and close. The message of the nativity isn't that Jesus humbled himself and came into extraordinary poverty. You can't believe they lived like that. I can't believe that that was the way that they existed. I can't believe that this is, it's, it's not that it's so different than us. The message of the nativity is that Jesus humbled himself and came into everyday humanity. Jesus isn't this sad, lonely baby who's been pushed out to a stable someplace needing our sympathy. Do you know where the stable came from? The stable came from you and I reading this story, hearing the word manger. They laid him in a manger. There were animals. Where do animals stay? In the barn, in the stable, away from the house. But that's not how it was in this day. He's in the middle of the family. He's in the middle of all the visiting relatives. He's in the thick of everything that is happening. And he is, like most babies do, demanding attention. Right? So there they, there they are. And think about this. There's, there's a miraculous in the birth of Jesus. There's absolute miraculousness. God in flesh, coming to take away the sins of the world. The creator of life, the light, the holy, the merciful, the mighty God, the, the one who has been promised over and over and over again throughout Scripture, and there he is, a baby surrounded by family, with his nervous parents looking on, lying in a borrowed cradle in a distant relative's home. Come on, every single one of us who is a parent has done that before. We have traveled. We have not brought our pack and play by mistake, perhaps. Can we borrow something to lay this kid in? Because I need to put him down. Don't, don't get me wrong. There are miraculous elements all the way throughout the story of Jesus. But the story of his birth occurred in the context of the mundane not the miraculous. The, the mystery, again, the mystery isn't that Joseph and Mary live in a time that is so much lesser than us. It's the fact that, the, that the Mary and Joseph are so much lesser than God, and yet God still showed up. God in flesh being held by Mary. The miracle of all of this is that God would love us at all, that God would, would choose to dwell with us in flesh, become one of us so that he might live the perfect life, so that he could die a sacrificial death, so that he could have this, this, this victorious resurrection so that you and I could have hope, that you and I could have joy, that you and I could be rescued. See, if, if Jesus was born in Caesar's palace, well, that would be a whole different picture, wouldn't it? I mean, he's come in glory because he is glory, and now we can never touch him. That, that, that's a mistake. That is bad theology. That's not what the Bible teaches. But to say that he is born so far away from us, so petty, so, 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 so impoverished, that, that we're so much more than he was, that's a mistake as well. Jesus came to be one of us. He came to be what we are. He was born into their moment, into the day in and day out of their everyday humanity. That's what the name Emmanuel means. It's not God with them. Emmanuel means God with us. It, it, the fact that he's not been pushed away to a stable, hidden in some mysterious space, the fact that he came to be born in the main living space with all its chaos and all of its noise is, should be an incredible encouragement to you and I. 
Because the reality is that when Jesus came, he came into the chaos and noise of my life right now. He is truly Emmanuel. He is truly with us. Jesus wasn't born over there for them. He was born into everyday life. He wasn't inviting us to visit him once a year. He's inviting us to to live with him day in and day out. He is with us in the midst of everything that is happening. The real wonder of Christmas isn't supposed to be our traditions. It's not supposed to be glittering lights. It's not supposed to be even hot chocolate and wonderful cookies. Those are great things. We need to enjoy those things and celebrate those things with our family and 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 our loved ones. But the wonder of Christmas that he is with us. Not just 2,000 years ago, but he came in flesh so that he could be present with us, that he could be our representative, and he could continue to intercede for us where he is right now. Emmanuel, God is with us. That's the message of the nativity. You pray with me. Father, thank you so much for the goodness of your word. But even more than that, thank you for the grace that is ours in Jesus Christ. Thank you that we can celebrate what you've done because you have reached out from heaven and rescued us where we are. Lord, I, I pray that in these moments we wouldn't get so fixated on different minuscule things. Because in all honesty, everything that we just talked about is, is so secondary to the primary. And the primary is this. You came to be one of us. You humbled yourself and you made yourself of no reputation but took upon yourself the form of a servant. You you put the flesh on that you actually created us in. And you did that so you could rescue us. Thank you for our rescue. Thank you for our Savior, Jesus Christ. I ask that in these next days and weeks leading up to our, our Christmas time together with family that we would stop and reflect on what it means that you are with us. <laughs> Thank you for the precious gift of your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his wonderful name I pray, amen.